Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson, and I am joined today by Ian McKay. We're going to discuss Mackay. the... Ian Mackay. I'm joined today by Ian McKay. Is it is it Scottish? It's Scottish, yes. Scottish, yeah. I should. Yeah. So, you know, my... Colbertson is also Scottish, but my family has... Uh, my family left a long, a long time ago. Oh, no, don't, don't worry. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I love England now, so I'm getting used to it. But, yeah. Okay. <laughs> My guest today is Ian Mackay, and we are discussing the the recent publication um, of this book by Kropotkin called Words of a Rebel, which has never before been available in English in its entirety, even though it contains some of Kropotkin's most famous writing. And... Uh, Ian, for my introduction before he gets to introduce himself, Ian has been translating and editing Kropotkin's work in these amazing anthologies, as well as individual editions for both AK Press and PM Press. In fact, Ian, I'm going to be featuring uh, Modern Science and Anarchy in a few months with a philosopher of science at Kent State. So that's coming along as well. So your work, Ian, is just huge for those of us who are interested in Kropotkin. So the Thank you for for doing this work for us. I'm happy to. Um, I I I like Kropotkin. He's a very good writer. Um, well, I have to say that um, when I when I became an anarchist, um, I didn't really rate Kropotkin that highly. <laughs> uh, it took a few years for um, before I sort of sunk in um, sort of how 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 good a writer and how important he was. Um, to so to, to some context, initially um, I kind of dismissed him as like the um, you know all with the gentle prince of cooperation stuff, you know, the, the big the picture people present of him. And, um, and uh, but as I sort of drilled into it, sort of read more and more of his things, it's like, actually, that's very unfair. He's he's much more than that. And I've now got a better idea of, of sort of um, why he was so um, so venerated by the movement, um, which which was a problem, actually, because um, they ended up sort of hero worshipping. And, um, and and obviously when he supported the allies in, in the set in like 1914, that blew up in everybody's face quite quite quickly. <laughs> um, so it's a case of yes, he's important. He's a very important writer, very important thinker. But um, yes, let's not put him on a pedestal because um, we did that before and, and we love to regret it. <laughs> yes. So I'm doing a, right now a series called uh, Anarchism 101. That's a lot of the introduction to great thinkers in one of their texts. And um, it is sort of the the entire project. I mean, this project, Ian, the Anarchism 101 came not from me, but from my listeners. They wanted this sort of anarchist canon. And it's lovely. And I'm also very uncomfortable with the idea of an anarchist canon. And this idea mm. that sort of I'm, I'm creating yet another like sort of stable, grand narrative. First came Proudhon, who was great, but not great enough, and Bakunin was a step forward, and then Kropotkin always ends up kind of the, like, flowering, the perfect mm. figure. And this is, of course, an absurd thing to say about a yes. person, especially an anarchist. And yet, it's so easy to do that with him because of his central role and his amazing writing. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, that's a fine boy. It's like, um, my, my favorite dead anarchist um, has, has always been um, Erico Matesta. 
Mm -hmm. um, um, and and um, you know, as well, in terms of um, his contribution, luckily AK Press are doing the his collected works, which which is making a you know, sort of filling a very big hole in our understanding of the evolution of anarchist theory. But yes, you're right. We have to be careful, um, you know, because the idea, like you know, Proudhon you know, better, you know, Bakunin is better than Proudhon, Kapotskin is better than Bakunin, and right. it's not as straightforward as that. Yeah, um, yes. You know, people have you know, people have good points, bad points. Do some people stress things better than others? Argue the case better than others and it's a case of um, understanding anarchism and all its many facets and all its many thinkers and so forth and yes we have to get away from looking at the great men and it's always usually <laughs> the great men the great women usually don't get a look in unless it's Emma Goldman but um, uh, but that's changing um, but yes but these are important writers and important thinkers and you can't ignore them but we have to put them in context because ultimately um, Kropotkin would not be being read now if it went for all the anarchists around the world who were doing things and making their own contributions. You know, all the, all the unsung people who is like, you know, the names appear if they're lucky in the papers, which are in an archive. But they are, they are the people who made Kapotkin relevant. Um, if he was just by himself, he would just be, oh, you know, nobody like nobody would listen, nobody would read him now because it would be like completely just a, a, a single finger, a single thinker thinker, um, doesn't have that much of an impact. He was part of a movement, he was very much I mean for the first. 20 years of his time in the movement, he didn't sign his articles. So it's a case of, um, you know, there will never be a complete bibliography of his writings because he didn't identify himself, he was just one comrade among many. And he, he definitely, I mean, one of the things he said when he visited the Jura Federation in 1872, one of the things that drew him to anarchism was precisely there wasn't this leader-led thing going on. Everybody were comrades together. Everybody made their contribution. They were not like they weren't putting people on, on pedestals. No, Bakunin was just you know another comrade, and that's what attracted him to anarchism. And obviously, and fittingly enough, you know we should view Kapotkin as another comrade um, rather than putting him on a pedestal. Yes, he was important. He wrote very important books, um, but he is part of a movement, and he's important because he's part of a movement. And it's and he became so famous and so influential is because he articulated what the movement was doing and thinking. And you can see that the moment he he sided with the imperialist powers in 1914, his influence disappeared um, because he was no longer articulating the anarchist movement's you know, ideas anymore. He basically went off um, on his own and he was isolated. Malatesta fought the battle and, and articulated the anarchist position. And when, when finally, um, when Russia went out of the war in 1918 and Kropotkin started sort of talking sense again, People started listening again. People visited them in Russia, Emma Goldman, Alexander Berkman, the Italian syndicalists and so forth, who all visited Russia, all visited him to get his ideas on it. And it's, so it's important to, to articulate, you know, the idea of like, you know, these sages and so forth. Well, yes, they're important, but they're only important because they articulated what the movement was arguing. They influenced that, obviously, but the movement influenced what they were arguing too. So it's a, it's a, interactive process and we should bear that in mind and um yes so we have to get away from you know the great men it's almost always great men but and, and view of them as like embedded within a movement and um you know, the reason why they're famous is because they articulated what the movement was doing um better than others but ultimately kapotkin was a comrade among comrades and when he was wrong um people pointed it out yeah, yeah. Well, in the, in the case of World War One, Emma Goldman yeah. and others were quite were quite willing to point out uh, when, yeah. when he was wrong. Oh, yes, that's that's wonderful. Um, it's 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 wonderful to be reminded of. I mean, one of the very first interviews I did was with 
the author Leonard Williams. And one of the first things he said when I was asking about his book was like, this, you know, my name is on this book, but every, you know, so many people were involved in making this a reality. And when you think about this book, Words of a Rebel, that is, was originally newspaper articles. Uh, you can imagine this sort of rom in this romantic way. You can have the illusion that an author goes somewhere and writes a book and hands it to the publisher and the publisher just does menial work or whatever. But it's impossible to imagine that for a newspaper. If there's other... Oh. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, the it was a rebel, um, Kropotkin was actually in prison in France um, when it was being put together. Um, his comrade um, Reclus, his fellow geographer, Elise Reclus, he was the editor. He 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 put those articles together. He did the book. Um, so Kropotkin was in prison at the time. So yes, it's uh, no, it's not a, it's, as a collective um, work. Obviously, it's like articles from a newspaper. He didn't produce that himself. Um, the actual bringing them together, getting the publisher and all that, that was done when he was in prison. So it's very much a collective, um, a collective project. Similarly with his other books, Conquest of Bread was also a collection of right, um, articles initially brought together by Reclue again. This time Kropotkin was in exile in Britain, not in prison. But, um, but, but again, it's like, you know, as a collective, as a collective project. Um, similarly with like, you know, uh, modern science and anarchy is slightly different because it was initially based on a Russian pamphlet um, and lectures and so forth. It's not quite, not all from newspapers, but it was a collaborative process, um, project coming from different lectures and pamphlets, revised and published in the Thames Nouveau. Um, but again, a collective project. And these are all collective projects. That's an important thing to remember. Yes, wonderful. Um, excellent. I next wanted to talk about sort of like where Words of the Rebel stands. I know we were talking before we started recording that Kropotkin says that Words of a Rebel is really part of like a two-part series. It's sort of a prelude or a first part to uh, Conquest of Bread. And if you do know anything about the anarchist movement, you know that Conquest of Bread, I don't know if this is true, but the legend is that they had Conquest of Bread, the anarchists did, on them in the Spanish Civil War. Like you sort of marched to war with uh, with a rifle and a canteen and the book Conquest of Bread. So we've got this book that uh, Kropotkin at least placed right along Conquest of Bread in its importance. So I'm curious uh, what, what you think of Kropotkin's theory. Uh, how does this book fit along, fit in with Conquest of, of Bread, if, that, if that's true and if it should be remembered sort of side by side? Yes, he says this. He says as much in his memoirs. Um, he said, like he basically said, the most thing was the rebel as the um, the, the destructive, the critical part of um, the two volumes, if you like. It's his analysis and critique of the current society. Well, um, the conquest of bread is a constructive part, as in, like you know, what we should be doing if it's when a revolution breaks out. How how should we how should we act? And the final chapter of Was of Rebel is expropriation, and that's what bridges the two works, uh, because um, essentially the first after a couple of sort of short introductory um, um, chapters about anarchist communism and sort of our well our riches, um, the, the bulk of the book is about expropriation and talking about if the Paris Commune happened again, uh, what lessons have we learned? How, what, what should we do to make sure that the economic transformation um, we need happens? So, yeah, so, for, so what's the variable is um, fundamentally a critique of, um, of capitalism, of the state. He talks about um, you know, the, the, the breakdown of the state. He talks about um, 
represent the government, the critique of representing the government. He talks about um, the critique, or well, it's like appeal appeal to the young, basically, you know, sort of talking about, you know, why everybody, you know, young at heart. He's not just talking about just young people, it's like young at heart. He says so much in, in, in the pamphlet. You know, it's like, are you a doctor or an engineer or, you know, how capitalism corrupts your um your aspirations to make a world a better place. You know, obviously it goes about working class people as well. Um and you know and he, he basically says you know this is capitalism, this is why it needs to be changed. He talks about like the necessity of revolution. He talks about like you know the, the system's corrupt and there needs to be a fundamental change. Um and he explains why um you know voting won't do it and he explains like sort of the, the, the institutional pressures involved, the breaks and so forth will go on. And so the first part of so essentially he is right, but the first part was of a rebel is um essentially the, the critique of capitalism and the conquest of bread is the constructive like what do we what initially what we should we do to replace this system with something better. And it's right, there's two parts of this of essentially the same project. And I would say that the major drawback between the two volumes, there should have been really a FUD volume, which um, really talks about how we get to <laughs> the revolution. <laughs> so that part is kind of like, um, you know, sort of not really talked about. It's mentioned in the past in a couple of times. And that's why in the new edition, I included um, various um, articles about the labour movement um, and, and the, the, as supplementary material, as I did with modern science and anarchy, I added some extra supplementary material to that to put some more context in. So um, I sort of tried to um, draw the um, sort of you know sort of bring articles forth where I sort of try to link the here and the and then if you see what I mean. Um, so what do we do in the meantime? And um, and that hopefully will sort of show Kapotkin's not some sort of um, you know airy dreamer who just thinks about you know the, the distant future or like you know well once the revolution comes you know what, what do we do now um and that's important because that's kind of been obscured and that's part of uh sort of you know why sort of part of the reason why Kapotin's got this sort of reputation as being a sort of um sort of um an aqua santa if you know what i mean <laughs> not, not only not only the beard um but you know and getting away stuff free um but it's a was on santa um, so yeah. I have I have done the anarcho Santa thing, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it was not just that. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, no, no, yeah. But um, so it's a case of it's important to sort of he was engaged with um the movement and the needs of the movement and, and the labor movement. So he he did write a lot of articles. Most of them have not haven't been translated. You know, um, a lot of the stuff first appeared in Direct Struggle Against Capital, the anthology I created. Mm -hmm. Um and it's a case of um that helps put it in the context. So it's a very important book because some of his most famous writings are in it, like Appeal to the Young, for example. Um, his articles on the, well, some of his articles in the past commune, he wrote about the past commune a lot, but the famous pamphlet on the past commune. Um, a lot of stuff was translated and appeared in anarchist pamphlets or in the anarchist press, but I, I, but no, the book itself was not translated until 1992, when Black Rose did a version of it for their... Um, Collected works of Kropotkin project to mark his um when was that nineteen ninety two so it would be a hundred it would be hundred and fifty years um yeah, from his right, buff right. yeah yeah um and but that version didn't include the Italian preface or the Russian preface or postface so it was and it missed out but it wasn't very good very well translated yeah. um because I was doing um. I did I've been working it's not out yet but I'm doing a libertarian reader which includes like you know like 
know, libertine anarch libertarians as a libertine Marxist, anarchist, guild socialist, syndicalist, and so forth, a quite a wide, wide range. And I wanted to include some Kropotkin, I wanted to include political rights um, from um, the was a rebel, and I thought, well, I better retranslate it because I don't want to get into this. Oh, don't, 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 I don't want to step on um, Black Rose's toes. And I realised, like when I was doing that, actually, this this translation is not as good as it could be. And so I thought, okay, and I contacted the PM Press, and they said, like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll go for that. Um, so it's a case of um, um, so that is very so that was the motivation for it. Um, for, for doing this um, because it contains a lot of important writings most of about half a book maybe was translated in various pamphlets and um, articles and so forth but the whole thing has never been translated um, including the prefaces and the postface um, and so um, it, it's his first book and ironically it's the last book to be fully translated into English <laughs> <laughs> again I think it's it's so important to understand I mean something that he writes maybe in one of the letters in the book or maybe one of the prefaces is that books are not that important to the anarchist movement, at least in that moment, because it's intellectuals. It's people like me that read, uh, that read books. And he is so much more interested in reaching workers and reaching oh, yeah. laborers with pamphlets and newspapers. And then he says sort of like offhandedly something like, but I suppose there are some people who will find it more easily in a book. And so we yeah. might as well, have a book but that is oh, so it's, different from the, the first yeah. His yeah it's true i mean he explicitly says in his memoirs you know he wrote um in a way which is accessible to ordinary people um and you can tell by his writings because he reads some um particularly marxist stuff um and it's just it's just like god this is this is hard going he uses a lot of jargon he uses a lot of terminology and some of it i think is not actually because well, i think he do it just to make himself look imp important and it's just like, well, if you can't explain it in a sort of in a way anybody can understand, then you failed. I think mm -hmm. I think Lenin said that the only way you can understand capital is if you, if you read Hegel's philosophy of right or something like that. <laughs> we read Hegel, you feel like if that is true, then Karl Marx is an awful writer because you know you, you, you if you have to read German philosophy to understand what Karl Marx was writing, then you, he's failed as a writer. Mm -hmm. um, so Kropotkin is very keen in basically making. Um, has ideas as accessible as possible uh, because ultimately it's like you know he knew the working class would be the people who who would be interested in a revolution not the elite um you know it's like you know the ones who are oppressed and exploited the ones who've got an interest in ending both and he deliberately wrote in a way which is accessible so he tried to make his ideas as complex as you know as, as ideas as the complex ideas as simple as possible not simplistic but as straightforward and as clear as possible and that's important and that's one of the great joys of Kropotkin. He didn't didn't put in his um, you know, didn't put on all the jargon. He didn't put in like you know dialectics and all that nonsense. He just wrote clean, clearly, and so that's why you'll never have a book called like what Kropotkin really meant, like you have <laughs> what Marx really meant, because you read it and you understand exactly what he meant. And the problem is, is that most a lot of Marxist particular commentaries on Kropotkin are written by people who haven't read them, hmm. and which just read. You regurgitate what other Marxists have said about them because if you actually read them, you'd realize that you know, the vast like 90% of what's said, like criticism of them, are not actually true. <laughs> you know, he wasn't, he was like, oh, you know, evolution and you know, he believed in cooperation, altruism, and all that. Goes, no, if you read the subtitle of Mutual Aid, it's a factor of evolution. 
you just have to read the subtitle um, because it's like you don't these people don't even get beyond the subtitle they don't even get beyond the title they don't even get to the subtitle and they're going on about how you didn't recognize you know we need for there's a competition and people be nasty to each other read the bloody book it's like he's very clear about all this it's a factor of evolution and it's similarly with um no, was of an evil. Um, it's a case of a, a lot of his stuff in there. It's a case of like you know, yeah, he's very clear. It's like you no, know, very clear the class struggle exists. He's very clear that you know he's fighting for the emancipation of the working classes. Um, you know, peasantry, workers, artisans, and it's all very much a case of um, he's a, he's addressing the, the common person and saying like you know, and trying to and, and trying to infuse hope. And he's very clear. It's like hope is what makes revolutions, and his book is very much a case of look at me. Look, you know, yeah, you've been you know, you've been exploited and oppressed, but look, um, something's better is there. There's tendencies in in the world that show there's something better, and we build on these tendencies, and um, that's one of the most important parts of the book. He points, he draws out things like you know the commune and sort of you know free association, and you know sort of you know the importance of um, federalism and so forth, and that sort of positive message comes through. It's not it's not the main part of the book, but he draws that out, and obviously goes into more detail and things like in, in the in the conquest of bread and modern science and anarchy. But um, the, one of the benefits of the book, one of the joys of the book, is that um, he combines critique with an analysis of the tendencies within capitalism, which point beyond it. And he says, no, we're not crazy people. Look, these things are going on now. You know, federalism, you know, associations, um, you know, it's like we don't have to do things in a centralised manner. Scientists work together in a decentralised federal manner. Why don't, why don't we do that of everything? It works, it works here. You know, the Red Cross works. Um, you know, sort of the National Life, you know, the, the Lifeboat Association in Britain works. Um, you know, so we can do we can do things in a better way. These within capitalism point beyond it, and we have to encourage those tendencies. Yeah, wonderful. I, I mean, when you're talking about evolution, just to add, uh, I Darwin also mentions cooperation, but I think most of the people who say that Darwin says everything is competition have also not read Darwin. I mean, it's astonishing oh, yeah. to me. That's, yeah, Kropotkin says exactly the same thing. He goes like, you know, here's, Kropotkin, here's, here's Darwin on cooperation. It's like, he, he, he rightly considered himself a, a Darwinist. He, you know, he really believed in survival of the fittest. He argued that quite rightly, that the groups which cooperate are better suited for survival. They'll have, you know, they'll, they'll live longer, they'll have more offspring, the offspring will survive better than if everybody's fighting and stabbing each other in the back. And you think, well, you put it, when you put it that way, it's like, and Darwin was right, Kapotka was right, you know, it's like, and the fact that, um, you know, that of Darwin has been distorted so much says more about the society we live in than it says about Darwin, because Darwin was a scientist and he could see the, you know, about cooperation actually was beneficial to individuals and allowed for the survival of the fittest to work. So yes, so Kropotkin was like, you know, Darwin said this, he based himself on Darwin, he referenced Darwin, the descent of man in particular. And um, it's a case of, yeah, it's like some people suggest that Kropotkin was like somehow anti-Darwin. Like, no, no, he wasn't. Even me, he, was, he explicitly based himself on Darwin's ideas. And the bit, and um, Daniel Todd's book, um, Darwin without Malthus, Malthus yeah. um, should be read by everybody who's interested in Kropotkin's ideas on, on evolution because he places Kropotkin in the Russian um, evolutionary tradition and links, very clearly links, you know, Darwin and Kropotkin and shows how Kropotkin himself built upon a commonplace Russian tradition where, which placed Darwin in a cooperative you know, environment and, and recognised that 
the, the dog eat dog world of the sort of favoured by the sort of British Darwinists isn't the whole story. And Darwin himself wasn't so narrow. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I'm actually going to have a whole episode in the works on this that we're going to going to use some of modern science and anarchy as well as actually, you know, tell people what Malthus said and what Spencer said and what Huxley said. Because no one, these, you know, if you click on social Darwinism on Wikipedia, it's like advocated by Spencer and Huxley. And Spencer and Huxley disagreed in these enormous, enormous ways. And to just now that they've, their ideas have been aligned in a way that is just, it's just sloppy and, and lazy and people don't either don't want to, or don't have the time to sit down and read 19th century text, which I, which I understand that, but maybe don't go around saying that Spencer yes. and Huxley believe the same thing. If you have read neither of them. Yes. I mean, Huxley himself is sort of somewhat misrepresented because um, he, he was saying, he wasn't saying that we should inv invoke Darwinism. He was basically saying, you know, like dog eat dog. He was actually arguing, but well, let's not oppress the masses too much because, you know, they won't work for us. They're all dead. And all, yeah. all and stuff. He was here. He, he took the sort of the gatatorial vision of nature and basically said, oh, we have to go. We have to be somehow you know, rise above our nature. And it's like, he never explains how that's possible. Yeah. And it's, and, 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 and Kropotkin basically just mocks him by saying like, well, essentially what you're saying is like, God did it. Yeah. You, you're meant to be like, you know, you're meant to be an, an evolutionist. You're meant to be like a materialist. You're meant to believe in natural selection. But ultimately you just, you end up invoking some mysterious spirit, which means we overcome our nature. And he went, well, that's nonsense. Our nature is cooperative. It's the nature is also competitive. What wins out very much depends on the circumstances and our education and so forth. And and um, and Huxley um, just basically goes, uh, oh, the magic fairy comes and we're all nice to each other. And you're like, okay, how does that work? And if it's a case of the people in power um, forcing us to be nice to each other, they're like, well, surely by your own argument, the people in power nasty evil creatures why are they why are they not doing this for themselves so, so he just destroys his own, his own argument and he presents um a theory of um you know natural selection to explain the rise of morality and ethics and so i mean like um richard dawkins and the god delusion has a chapter on the evolution of morality and you think like oh that's only like about 100 years after kapotkin was writing about it <laughs> you know it's like finally they caught up um and it's just like yes and, and that is like so kapotkin basically goes but you're not actually natural scientists you're not an evolutionist you are not actually basing your ideas on a rigorous account of um the facts and you end up writing nonsense and you end up invoking some sort of mysterious godlike spirit which transforms us somehow to make us um, ignore our nature. And so it's like, it was like, it's quite a joy reading them sort of taking this nonsense apart, particularly since this nonsense gets repeated all the time, even today. And we think like over 100 years later, we'd, we'd learn to know rubbish when we read it, but no, it still gets regurgitated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other person besides Darwin that is, I just, uh, my most recent episode or one of my recent episodes was about capitalism and Adam Smith and just, you know, Adam Smith oh, says, yeah. Adam Smith says big corporations are bad. And if you ever have big corporations, you can't have capitalism. So when people <laughs> run around and say, oh, well, we, we need big corporations because we just have to have capitalism and Adam Smith said so. It's the same thing. These people have not ah. read Adam Smith, they have a vague sense, and then they'll go on and write for the Wall Street Journal or whatever. But they clearly haven't haven't read more. Oh than yeah, two I mean, words. Yeah, if you if you read Adam Smith, he's um he's quite aware of the limitations of capitalism, of what was 
of elements of capitalism of his time and and generally he wasn't a fan <laughs> it's just for, um, it's just that he wasn't he's like he wasn't a fan but he didn't like the um, mercantile structures in place yeah. even yeah. less yeah and he's very critical of things like division of labor um he's very aware that um the bossy had the advantage in terms of like strikes and so forth yeah. um and he basically says at one point well if the labor if a law is passed which is pro-labor then that's a good thing because um because the bosses are basically influenced by politicians. Yeah. So if the politicians pass a pro-labor law, it must mean that it's um it's a good thing. Yeah. And the reason why he was advocating um sort of laser fair was because the rich influenced the, the politicians were elected by like five percent of the population. The rich is five percent. So anything they passed was in favor of the rich. So <laughs> in the social context of the time. Adam Smith was basically saying, let's stop the rich distorting the market and, and, and crushing the poor. And that's the context of the time. And that's forgotten completely. And instead, it's like, let's use Adam Smith to smash the poor. And you think, that's not really his argument. I think you're misunderstanding the social context and his, and the bloody book you, you invoke. Um, and he's a very important, I mean, Kapodkin liked, liked Adam Smith. Yes. Um, particularly his theories on um, sort of morality and sort of, but also, like you know, he also mentioned Adam Smith positively in terms of economics as well, because he'd read them, unlike yeah. a lot of them. There's a lot of these people like he'd read Adam Smith. He was a very well-educated man, and so it's like it's a case of modern science and anarchy. It's like you know, it's got a few positive references to Adam Smith because he knew what was going on. And one of the key um, arguments in modern science and anarchy, like in uh, was the rebel, is that the state is used by the rich to enrich themselves. To you know, secure the power and privilege in the in the property, and obviously we don't want to um, sort of empower the capitalist state because it's the capitalist state. <laughs> it's a state run by and for capitalists. So, so sort of empowering that means that you know you've got to sort of disempower the working class, and that's one of his key arguments. And there's elements of that in, in Adam Smith. Um, obviously, Absolutely. he didn't put it that way, but in terms of what he was arguing, you know, you know, stop the state intervening because the state's run by the top 5% of the population and they're intervening to bolster their power, privileges and property. So that's the context of Adam Smith and it's still the context today. Um, but Adam Smith is invoked by people who really haven't heard, read him. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, as you say, it's a case of um, the amount of times I've read stuff and you just go like, well, he didn't quite say that now, did he? about yeah, numerous offers and it's just like that's why it's important to read these things because yeah, it's like yeah. the context is important and Kropotkin was very much he's very influenced by you know he was a man of his time and obviously he read Anne Smith he read other people and that's reflected in his and always works and it's very clear that um he's engaging with um you know the liberal tradition like John Stuart Mill, you know, Spencer, for example, and he's critiquing, he's drawing this, like, he's basically saying, well, yes, they've got a point about this, but we forget about this, and he's, he's exposing the sort of contradictions within liberalism, for example. He's saying, like, well, on one hand, they recognise the limitations of representative government, for example, but on the other hand, they defend property, and defend, like, you know, sort of um, the state as the defender of property. Therefore, they, they, they end up in a contradiction on the one hand, they want to minimise state intervention, but on the other hand, they have to support state intervention to keep the capitalist system going. And so if they were actually true to the, the politics, then they would end up being socialists and end up truly abolishing state. And to be fair, John Stuart Mill did become a cooperative socialist 
and he recognised the contradiction and he moved beyond liberalism. Spencer didn't, and Kropotkin spends a lot of time sort of pointing out his contradictions mm-hmm. um, in modern science and anarchy in particular. So he's very much engaged with with with, with the thinkers of his time. But one, one, one person he doesn't really engage with is Karl Marx, strangely enough, yeah, because very, because very little of Karl Marx was actually published at the time. You know, it's like you know, you had the Communist Manifesto, you've got another few pamphlets. In terms of, um, you know, sort of, you know, we, we just assume, um, you know, that everybody had like fifty volumes of the collected works. That's never been the case. For the bulk of the, the history of socialism, Marxism was basically one or two pamphlets, a few articles here and there, a few letters here and there. So he didn't really engage with Marx because there wasn't much to engage with. He engaged with like the, the social democrats, the right. Marxists of his time, but um, in terms of thinkers, yeah, he didn't really bother with Marx because there wasn't much to critique. We, you know, he, the more a case of critiquing the the dead end, which he Marxists led the international into political action. That was his, one of his major things, and um, and that comes out in, in Words of the Rebel, um, particularly in the articles on the Labour movement, um, which I've had, which I've added in this edition, and it's his, his argument is like all the way through is like, yes, by by pursuing political action, by forming a political party which takes part in elections, you're drawing the Labour movement into a dead end. You have to you have to look at you know the direct struggle against capital. You have to look at economic struggle. Um, you know, sort of unions, strikes, occupations, and so forth. Forms of direct. You know, it didn't. It didn't call it direct action then, but forms of direct action, which are movements based on direct action, which would bring you into conflict with the real power in society, which is of course capital. And you know, and so he was. He was very much engaged with um, article you know, debating within the socialist movement, which way forward. And um, drawing on the lessons of the, um, the first international to critique the second international, and ultimately the third international, because he was around for that form. And so he, he had a very eventful fifty years in the movement. So going back a bit to John Stuart Mill and liberalism, we do need to go forward and talk about the revolution that Kropotkin says is coming that maybe didn't quite come, because that's one part of the book that we need to get to. But uh, this is partly for my listeners, Ian, and partly just for me, because there's a there's a bit of Kropotkin that I feel like I read in your anthology, Direct Struggle Against Capital, but I can't find it. So uh, we'll see if it exists or if you know it. I feel like somewhere he says something along the lines of the the values or views of anarchism and liberalism are more or less the same, but that liberalism thinks it can sort of stop the process and anarchism goes all the way. Is that, have I, have I invented this? <laughs> oh, that's, but yeah, he's, he's made, he makes a few comments along those lines. He basically says, um, you know, and, and um, Anarchist communism, um, a pamphlet anarchist communism, is is, is um, principle is basis in principles. Um, uh, he basically points out there's two um, tendencies. There's the liberal tendency, which is sort of trying to minimise um, state intervention, and there's a socialist tendency, which is basically um, you know trying to get rid of property. And he said that anarchism is sort of, if you like, a combination of the two. Mm. Um, but I, but you have to bear in mind that that particular pamphlet was written for the liberal news, liberal journal in the 19th century. So he's very much tailoring his argument to the audience. Um, so in terms of, so he was he was trying to address um, ideas which he knew the audience shared, and so sort of trying to cons- um, put anarchism into. Um, that context, so people, his audience would go, ah, right, home rule. Um, so, so he's he's, he's writing, he's writing to, um, 
he's writing in a way which sort of um, draws out the possibility of conversion. He's clearly <laughs> trying to convert people. And fair enough, you know, um, and you have to take that opportunity. But um, he's also very clear that liberalism in itself um, hits this contradiction between um, sort of trying to minimise the state, but also um, trying to defend property and inequality and so forth. And he draws that out. He said, basically, your, your ideal of getting rid of the state or minimising the state will never happen as long as there's oppression and exploitation of the working classes, as long as there's property and inequalities of property. And he's basically, similarly, when he, he argues with socialists, when he says, well, yes, you want to create equality, you want to get rid of um, you know, property, inequalities in property by socialising things, but you're keeping the state, and that's inequality of power. Yeah, yeah. And so he's, he's, uh, he's, he's drawing out the contradictions between state socialism and its aspirations and liberalism and its aspirations. He's not exactly saying that anarchism um, is sort of liberalism um, perfected. He's just, he's pointed out that, yes, we have some, some, some ideas mm -hmm. and some in common, but here's why you're, you will reach a contradiction and how you address this contradiction will determine where you go. And I think Spencer has used the example of this because Spencer, as he got older, became increasingly reactionary. Yeah. And um, and so it's a case of, you know, it's like you have a choice. Either you become consistent. He says it says the same <laughs> things to the socialists, state socialists. Either you become consistent and embrace anarchism and recognise that political power and, e and economic power are, are intertwined. If you, you can't get rid of them. Um, you either get rid of them both um, or you'll you have them both forever. And that's what he's pointing out to both the socialists, the state socialists, because obviously Eric is a socialist, state socialists and the liberals. He's basically saying, you're, you're almost there. Let me, let me show you, like, you know, where you where you go wrong. Let me show you the, like, the logical contradiction and where you can go forward and recognise, you know, where you, where you need to go. And in terms of those types of arguments, you have to bear in mind, um, you have to put it in the context of the audience he was writing for, because he doesn't write like that for um, for things in the anarchist press. You know, that sort of thing doesn't really get addressed because he's that's not the audience. So you have to bear in mind he's tailoring things for the audience he's writing for. Um, but yes, you're right, he does say things along those lines, but purely in, in the sense of like, I'm trying to convert you to the cause and I'm, I'm stressing the stuff you, you stuff we have in common so I can convince you to go a step forward and actually yeah. recognise the contradictions. And and the thing about liberalism is, of course, is like people look at liberalism now and, and project that back. But liberalism itself is like quite a reactionary position. <laughs> if you read like people like Joseph Locke, or Locke, for example, it's very much a case of um, ruled by the, by the with property owning elite. And if you're working class, you don't you don't have all these rights. You basically just shut up and do what you're told. And um so the liberalism um Ben, classical liberalism, and you can see that today, because you, you see like people like um is it Peterson, that phony um so-called academic the, the Canadian guy? Yeah, the Canadian guy who decided to, to sort of decided just oh. to eat meat and unsurprisingly enough it became constipated because we, we have evolved to be omnivores. You can't just survive with meat. You get constipated and you, you do bad things to yourself. That idiot. Um, he, he calls himself a classical liberal, doesn't he? And it's like he's got reaction, very reactionary authoritarian politics. He goes, yes, because classical liberalism is like that. 
Um, the notion of liberalism being warm and fuzzy and nice and stuff is quite a recent development. If you read the, the, the liberals of the time, or Kropotkin's time, supported like the Italian state, where they were sort of shooting down workers in the street, um, you know, unarmed workers being shot. Um, they were fine with that. They were fine with like oppressive laws because you know, they recognised the state was there to protect property and to protect their power and privileges. That was liberalism at the time. Um, and so we have to bear that in mind too. Um, so he was very much tailoring things to the audience. And so, um, so, but yes, he did say something <laughs> along those lines, but not quite. Yeah, and but I mean, I will say, like, I do think that this that this is the perfect move. I mean, I also interested in conversion, given that given the number of the number of people in uh, the states, at least, who are you know left uh, left adjacent and and interested in something and interested in more radical options, and they're flocking to. Uh, people like Bernie Sanders and AOC and yeah. the DSA, all of which are things that I certainly prefer to what is currently happening in America. But then it's you, it does seem to me that it's like, hey, yeah, yeah, you, you know, you and I want the same thing, and uh, but there is a there is a contradiction in your reasoning that you would be quite happy if, say, the Supreme Court delivered democratic socialism, or if an imperial president delivered democratic socialism. And yes. has it ever occurred to you that? If a president could deliver democratic socialism, they could also deliver fascism. So if you yeah. if you are really anti-fascist, you can't go down this road. That's the that's the move that Kropotkin is making that I that I want to make. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I've never been one for um sort of splendid isolation in terms of the anarchist movement. It's like I remember once I was on a demo in London when I lived in London, and I, it was an anarchist fair, but we're all like masks up in a little cluster, making no attempt to interact with anybody around them. It's just like you're on a march. These people are like questioning things, and you are not trying to get them interested in anarchism, other than look at those weirdos over there with the masks on and, yeah. and, and the black flags. You just go, you're missing an opportunity here. And anarchism is, if it's anything, is a movement of the people, and you have to basically win people over. Um, and that's always that's Kropotkin's position. It's always been my position, and I don't believe in splendid self-isolation because ultimately, um, you end up being a cranky old guy who raves and rants about everything. And it's just like, including your own comrades. And it's just like, you know, who try to do something. And it's just like, yeah, okay, you do that. And I'll get on with more important stuff. Yeah, okay. but you're right. We have, to, we, have to make, we have to make allies. And yes, people who have, you know, favoured Danny Sanders, it's like here, it's a case of, you know, you've got the Tory party, you've got the Labour party. People who are in the Labour party will be closer to anarchism than the people in the Tory party, full stop. Um, yeah. And it's a case of you have to recognise you got you got limited time and resources, so you try to convince people who are closest to you because that requires the least work. So um, that's my perspective, and I think you know, and I think Kropotkin is very much that case. He presents critiques of things, he draws out to whatever audience he's addressing himself to. He draws out what we have in common, where we differ, and why you should. No longer differ and reject those particular points of view and come over and, and sort of you know embrace embrace the cause. And he's very successful. He is one of the best writers and he, he did win a lot of people over to, to anarchism thanks to his writings. So you know, yeah, it's something to build on. Definitely something to build on. Not not perfect, but definitely solid foundations. Yeah, and particularly appeal to the young, um, which is a chapter in this book. It really, I mean, look, I have an academic background. I've taught a lot of young people in elite circumstances, and the vast majority of them say something like, I'm going to become a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor 
in order to change the world yes. and make it a better place. And Kropotkin really argues without a, I mean, he would say revolution, but you could also just say enormous transformation, revolution, yes. enormous transformation, whatever. Doctors and lawyers and engineers, even the quote good ones, even the ones working for quote social justice, they cannot they cannot make a difference. I mean, they cannot make a true difference. They cannot do anything but serve reactionary causes because they're integrated into reactionary systems. And that, yes. that was, that's a, that's a blow to the sort of liberal democratic Obama, Tony Blair style. Like let's, mm -hmm. let's just get some good people in the good positions and Hey, they're going to blow up a few middle Eastern people, but that's, you know, yeah. just the price you pay and, and we'll make it oh, better yeah. in the system. Well, that's what Kapotkin said. It's like, you know, all the, all the socialists who talk about the conquest of power. Um, it's one of, one of the titles of one of his articles, um, which has never been translated in, into, into English. Well, it has been, but recently I did it. But it's like, yeah, but conquest of power, but power con conquers you. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, you end up being part of a system that you try to transform. And, if you, you know, it's like, yeah, and people say like, oh, the anarchist movement is small. It's like, yes, okay, yeah, the anarchist movement is small. But like Labour Party or the left wing of the Democrats, um, assuming there's that's that left wing, um, <laughs> you think like, um, yeah, okay, they're bigger, but we're not socialists. We're not aiming for a transformation of society. They're aiming for wee tweaks here and there to make it like slightly better, and and that's it. It's, it's like, okay, fine. Um, you know, yeah, there's more people willing to do that. Fine, but but you have to be in mind that's not that's not <laughs> enough. You know, and you know, yeah, and we have to win that case and we have to win the argument, and it's a case of um. Maybe with the Corbyn situation where we saw the bureaucracy of the Labour Party basically destroy the, the party rather than have sort of a, a slight a slightly radical you know, um, politician, somebody who was somebody who would be considered mainstream in the seventies. Yeah. You know. Um, and it's like he's like, Oh, the coming of the of the Antichrist. And so it's like, look, even even your own party um bureaucracy worked on the mind him. Maybe it's time to think, well, maybe change doesn't come through Parliament. Maybe yeah. change won't come through the Labour Party. And you'll be banging your head against a brick wall for quite a long time. And I we've had that. like, yeah, we've had like, now we've had 12 years of the Tories. We've had so many elections. It's just like, okay, you have the idea that like, you know, it'll come through Parliament. Like, we're still waiting. <laughs> you know, the, the Labour Party's been around the yonks. Um, is it are we near a socialism than we've been we were like in Kapotkin's time? Probably not. Uh we've got we've got we've got we've got some state ownership, some state intervention, but capitalism's still going, and equality's still rising, social mobility's still dropping. Um so it's like maybe it's time for a rethink. Yeah, we are, we are this Kapotkin's got this chapter in was a rebel called Revolutionary Minorities. And he makes the point, yes, we are we are a minority, we don't deny it. Every movement starts off as a minority. It's whether or not we chime with with wider tendencies or not when we'll grow. And I think we'd still do chime with the tendencies. We know our analysis is still valid, our solution is still valid. We just have to work out how best to apply those ideas. And we have to bear in mind the state itself has um been working hard to stop us being able to apply those ideas. You know, it's so that it was like in Britain, for example, the, the Tories who go like, oh, we're minimal state, we don't believe in bureaucracy, we want to cut red tape. They have passed law upon law regulating trade unions, making it hard to go on strike, making it hard to do anything. And this is the case of, um, you know, they have been intervening, they're using the state to intervene to, 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 to undermine popular struggles because they know that power lies outside parliament and they act to keep that power minimised.
because you know it's like you don't have you know anti anti labour laws. You know the anti labour laws they have is not directed against the Labour Party. It's directed against trade unions and protest. They're currently putting through laws which will make you know actual just protests, actual marches and so forth harder. And then we'll basically be too noisy. You can be arrested. That's a law they're putting in. And I did say to I did say to my my family, it's like Putin's missing a, a trick when he's crushing the um you know anti-war movement in um Russia. You should say, you know, oh no 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 no. They're perfectly entitled to you no know, you know, protest against the war. It's just been too noisy. <laughs> <laughs> like because that's that's literally the law they're passing in Britain to stop people getting together to get a sense of a collective strength. And they're using the state to break that power because they're still scared of us. Even even now, after being in charge for like 30, 40 years, they're still aware of the power of ordinary people to change things. And they're still scared of it. And they're still passing laws to make it harder. Yeah, that's I mean, they they, they are they prove every time they pass a law like that, how powerful we could be. Which oh, yeah, exactly. Through- yeah, brings me now to this idea of, you know, I said transformation instead of revolution because I'm, you know, I'm a little leery of the word revolution in part because mm-hmm. of how it functions in this book, Kropotkin. So I would say this book, the analysis of this book holds up incredibly well in 2022. And yet this claim that Kropotkin makes at one point, he says it will be within 10 years. He says mm-hmm. everything he sees is moving towards the revolution. He wrote this book or he wrote the articles that became this book in a mode that was not just optimistic for a revolution, but an analysis that suggested in a revolution in an almost Marxist way was almost inevitable, or at least was building. And we certainly, perhaps World War One and the rise of fascism and totalitarianism was the was was the thing that he saw coming. He saw the the earthquake coming or the volcano, but it certainly was not the anarcho-communist revolution yes. or socialist revolution that he saw. So I'm wondering how we can how we can think about this this book that for all its insights seems to have you know gotten one thing very wrong or at least it's complicated in a way that I haven't worked through for myself yet. Well yeah have to yeah yeah he Kapot can address his this in the Italian preface of 1904. And he basically says you know when I was writing this obviously we thought it would be a revolution in 10 years. And Marx and Engels said the same thing. Yeah. I mean I've I when I became an anarchist way back in like 1987 I was I was pretty confident it'd be like you know five ten years max because <laughs> you know you read these ideas you go like wow all we have to do is tell people about it and we go like yeah because it's, it's so anyway, obvious. yeah it doesn't work by God does it um, so he addresses that issue um, in um, the 1904um preface he basically says um, basically the reaction after the Franco-Prussian War he did he he underestimated that that was the key thing he he was saying also kind of um, draws out his um, anti-Prussian, anti-German sort of tendencies, which came out later on. But he did address that issue. And you have to bear in mind, though, that um, like the following year, um, 1905, saw the revolution in Russia. You know, so he he did, he, he was, the revolution did break out in Russia. Um, you know, obviously, and, and you have to bear, and also have to bear in mind, but, you know, this period we're talking about, like 18, 1877, 1879, 77 onwards, there were quite massive strikes, there were quite massive protests and so forth. There were things that were going on, which we forget about now, but at the time it was like, you know, wow, you know, these were like mass movements, like insurrectionary movements, um, the general strikes and going on, breaking out all the time. So he, you have to bear in mind that, you know, these were things going on, which were definitely going, 
things are actually going to things things could happen. And part of the problem, um, and the Kapotkin discusses this as well, is that the labour movement itself was was shunted into a dead end. Instead of it being based on like you know sort of direct action, it got shunted into parliamentarianism. And to a degree, I can understand why, because obviously building a political party, telling people to vote every five years, and basically that's it. That's easy to do. <laughs> building a union, building a, like a community group, actually conducting like you know sort of direct action things is difficult, and keeping that momentum going can be is difficult. And you know what's easier than just going, um, yeah, okay, we'll vote for the leader, and the leader will get into parliament, and the leader will argue our case for us, and we don't have to really do very much. And it's understandable, but you know sort of sometimes people take the easy option as a dead end, but at the time you can go like. Okay, yeah, let's give it a go. Um, but so, yes, he he was optimistic, and his optimism was very much. Um, I think you have to be an optimist to be an anarchist, because otherwise, it'd be, I think you'd be a pessimistic anarchist. Um, but at the same time, you, we forget about you know the general strikes. We forget about the sort of you know in Spain, for example, it was like you know regular sort of insurrections mm-hmm. and so forth that broke out more or less spontaneously. Um, we forget about all that. We just see the big big events. And Kropotkin's, if you read like, um, you know, the rebel and the revolt, the two, two papers, you know, the first one was obviously where words of the rebel came from. Um, there's articles in um, it's sort of the social movement where he, where things like general strikes, things like, you know, insurrections and so forth, things like um, in Austria, for example, like, you know, miners went into the local city and just basically took what they wanted because because they were on strike and they were starving, they just went and took stuff. And that's been chronicled in the paper. So there are events going on which are basically contributing to the idea that something's going to happen. And Kapot can just say, yes, we were too optimistic. But, and, and we, we underestimated certain factors like, you know, the reaction after the Franco-Prussian War and obviously the dead end of socialism, um, you know, sort of the parliamentary road, which was dissipated a lot of um, struggles. Um, but, but, you know, there were things going on. I mean, like 1877, for example, just before Kapot, two years before Kapot can, um, um, launched um, the rebel, um, there was the, like the, the 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 in America the um, great railway strike, great railway 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 yeah, railway. yeah. Um, and that basically saw strikers um, more or less fighting with with with, with the, the state forces, seizing like areas like vast areas of of the country, and it's like Kapotka's like you know it was like pointing to that is like some lessons people learned from that. He talks about that in there. He talks about um, you know sort of strikes in in Austria. He, he like links it to what's going on. And yes, obviously, but I think for Kropotkin, and he stresses this a lot, particularly in his later writings and letters and so forth, it's like the key factor is the militant minority, the sort of anarchist being there and proposing ideas to people and saying, no, we should do this, we should do that. And the role of, of actual, like, you know, revolution minorities would transforms these revolts into something but more substantial. And hopefully, if they hopefully they fail, they but they, they keep um, a legacy in terms of movements. Um, so those sort of you know, like in Spain or in Italy, when sort of the labour movement um, eventually became like in Spain, you know, the, the anarchist labour movement became the CNT eventually. Um, and you know that legacy continues and was built upon. And he was arguing that like the role of anarchists is quite important. It just doesn't happen by itself. And the role we have to learn is like, how do we apply ideas now so that any tendencies and any revolts that do happen, any social movements that do arise, 
they get they go in a positive direction and don't get sidetracked into dead ends like parliamentarianism. And so that was very important. And they just stressed that a lot as a case of yes, um, I was very optimistic. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot going on to justify that optimism. And ultimately the reason why is that you know we it's our fault in a sense, the anarchist movement's fault for not being part of the people and that was one of his great motifs one of his great um, sort of arguments and um it's like go to the people because initially he was part of the russian populist movement very much go to the people and that was his arguments Testa made the same point there's a case of you know, we have to be in popular movements we have to be in a union we have to be active in our union we have to be in our active in the community groups like, like during the poll tax movement anti-poll tax movement in britain like 1987 onwards um anarchists played a big role in that and that was a, and that was unfortunately moved into the dead end of of parliamentarianism thanks to um, militant um, social uh, Trotskyists essentially who um, Scottish socialist Scottish socialist party eventually, and um, that that was based on community organisation, you know direct action in terms of stop, stopping them people want oh, sheriff officers going and taking people's um, furniture for unpaid bills unpaid. Um, community charge bills and that was about well, was all very much direct action um solidarity community organization built a federation across um all britain and it was wasted it, it disappeared but uh, in favor of electing thomas sheridan to be into the scottish parliament and it's just like that was a great opportunity um i think hand gay solidarity group still goes and that's an example of what could have happened across britain but instead it was like was it enough anarchists the anarchists were too small and maybe too too hesitant about arguing the, their ideas strongly maybe because you don't want to come across as trots and you can understand why you don't you know what you don't want to come across as a robotrop but at the same time you still have to argue your case you know not to do that means letting other people do it um so yes he was optimistic, but as I say, he had cause for being optimistic, and he did address the issue of why the revolution didn't break out in the 1904 um, preface um, of the Italian edition, which is in this edition. Um, but you also have to remember that a year later, the, the Russian Revolution broke out, and that influenced, like you know, across the world. And yes, you're right. Um, revolution has had, um, you know, the Russian Revolution failed. Um, you know, produced like you know the Bolshevik dictatorship, um, and as a case of um, yes, you could be hesitant about it, you could be like wary about it because revolutions have not succeeded, either they were crushed or they turned into, in the case of Russia, um, something worse than what it was to begin with, which is like pretty, pretty, pretty impressive. Because yeah. yeah. we're talking about czarism, um, but as the point was, like you know, the, the potential was there. And if you look in the Russian case, like you know, the Makhnovists in the Ukraine, um, you know, they were fighting against the red and white dictatorship. You know, by no means were they perfect, but they did offer the potential of something better. And that's what you should always remember. Revolutions kind of break out without anybody wanting them to, um, and unexpectedly. And it's a case of if it does happen, then you have to be part of the movement and the Kapotkin stresses us all the time. Um, so that when it does happen, you're there to sort of push it in the right direction towards a liberation rather than a, a new a new boss. And unfortunately in Russia, um, yeah, you, you read some of the stuff, you know, sort of and and sort of you know 
resolutions and so forth. I was reading a thing about um, in sort of factory committees, and the guy comments along the lines, something along the lines of, you know, and the people were so, you know, sure that, you know, the, the state would be always on their side. They didn't put any um, sort of things about, you know, recall and so forth. And think, yeah, that's a problem because, you know, they had been convinced by Bolsheviks that, well, we get a worker state, then it will be represented workers. We don't have to worry about it too much. Um, and I was like, that mentality was like, you know, well, power was abused. Um, you know, and deliberately so a lot of the time. So you some of the stuff Trotsky wrote, it's just going like, oh my God. It's amazing. I know, it's just like, um, and it's like, and so it's a case of, um, yeah, you built the structures which were later perverted the revolution because you didn't listen to Kropotkin, you didn't listen to Bakunin, who predicted exactly what was going to go wrong and did. You know, it's like, you, know, you read like the Great French Revolution and you go like, yeah, then you read this, but I don't think you took it on heart. <laughs> it didn't, didn't quite work out the lessons Kropotkin was so strongly advocating. And you made all the mistakes the Jacobins made because you don't recognise that Jacobins were actually um, centralists and even for minority rule, um, i.e. the bourgeoisie. And you thought, well, we had the right idea, centralism, but it'll be for the workers, it'll be for the masses. <laughs> nope, the structures you put in place for minority rule Creating minority rule and creating a new minority in power, a new a new ruling class, a new bureaucracy, the, the bureaucracy, um, and it's a case of um, Kropotkin wouldn't be surprised because he would be predicted that Bakunin wouldn't be surprised, Maltese and so forth, and that's the thing, though. It's like even today you just sit there thinking, like, why are we having these arguments with Marxists? Because we were right, you were wrong. <laughs> you don't, we don't have, you know, it's like it's like an evolutionary theory. We don't have. Um, you don't have debates between Darwinists and Lamarckians because you know, Darwin was proved right. You know, it's like in terms of social science, you know, how many times do you have to keep doing the same thing over and over again and still coming out with the same bad result before you admit maybe we were wrong? Um, because we've got 150 years of experience, over 150 years of experience, and you think like we can draw some conclusions from this 150 odd years of experience. And the conclusions were Kropotkin was right, <laughs> Bakunin was right, Marx was wrong, Lenin was wrong, Engels was wrong. Not saying they didn't have any insights, not saying we're wrong about anything. I'm just saying in terms of the strategies, we've got 150 years plus now. We can we can safely say, but who was right, who was wrong? I would say. I would say. I could not agree with you more, Ian, and that's why I was always looking for something in American pragmatism or something because I knew because I knew Marxism was 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 wrong. I mean, I knew I hadn't found anarchism as a road until recently, but it's obvious that Marxism was wrong. I'm with you. I don't know why. I mean, by all means, keep reading Walter Benjamin and people like that. And of course, there's very interesting stuff written by Marx and Engels. But yeah, I don't know why we still have Marxists. I really, I really don't. Who knows? I don't know either. Um, <laughs> and it's like, you know, if you really wanted to stay a Marxist, you become a council communist. At least you're in the right area. Um, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's like you don't have to be like, Trotskyism and stuff. It's like, how can you still be Trotskyist? You know, considering like, you know, it's like, the more you find out about what the, the Lenin and Trotsky did in power, the more of a notion that it's because of the civil war, because of its isolation and so forth, it caused the rise of Stalin. You just go, no, it's like, you know, the ditches the, the were built by the Bolsheviks before the civil war started. The civil war and isolation made things worse, undoubtedly, concentrated the power more, but the, the path was already there. Yeah, and it's a case of like, you know, and the path was predicted by, you know, the anarchists, and he said, look, if you go down this route, this is what's going to happen. If you went down that route, it happened. 
And Kropotkin was obviously like, you know, he's writing in the, 19, in the 1919 postscript um, to Words of Rebel. He talks about the Russian experience and he's pointing out like, you know, well, yeah, well, yeah, if you have a centralized structure and you have a few people in charge, you're never going to be able to solve the problems any real revolution or any real society would have. It's just not going to happen. And the conquest of bread is very strong in that too. And it's a case of um, you need popular participation, you need federalism, you need decentralization, you need sort of, you know, dynamic structures because life is complicated and you don't know what's going to happen. And if you wait for the people in charge to do it, then you're going to be waiting a long time. And anybody who's done a job knows that, you know, the, the, you know, waiting for a boss to decide something. It's like, well, okay, I better go and do it because he's never going to make a mind up. Same with politicians. It's like, wait for politicians. To, it's like during the COVID thing, you know, the COVID, the initial months of the COVID um, crisis here, um, you know, people were, you know, people and companies and like individuals are volunteering to make PPE, you know, protection, um, protection equipment for, for the nurses and so forth. And the government tried to sort of organize that and it just went into dead end, which just disappeared into the bureaucracy. And it's like, yeah, you wait for the bureaucracy or wait for the bosses to do something, you're going to have a long wait. And the Kropotkin's very clear on that. You have to act for yourself, you have to act locally, you have to federate, you have to take the initiative. And that's one of his things he always stressed, like, you always use the word men of initiative, obviously reflecting the <laughs> language over time. But people of initiative, people taking the action, you know, sort of going like, here's a problem, let's try this. And that's what makes, that's what any revolution needs or any social movement needs. It's for this it's dependency on like leaders to act for us. Um, again, will get you killed. Um, you know, COVID, for example. Um, if you waited for the politicians to act, you know, a lot more people would have died. Because that's what happened in Britain. Um, you know, the boss Johnson dithered and waited, and it's like, and there's like the local coffee shop. They went into lockdown like two weeks before the government decided to do it, and it's like the local co local coffee shop had the right <laughs> idea, and more people had to do that. And it's just like yes. So yeah, Kropotkin's you know arguments in terms of um, you know he looks back and on 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 the words of a rebel. And the 1919 um, afterward, and draws out the the, the conclusion of the lessons of the Russian Revolution, and which fits in exactly with the analysis of the conquest of bread and other parts of the words of, uh, words of the rebel. Okay, I think that's a wonderful place to end. Except I do want to take a moment um, to ask you about the uh, the art on the cover. I'm blanking on the artist's name, but I know that they've illustrated a number of these yes. Kropotkin editions and they're just exquisite. Oh, yeah, lovely. Yes, yes. Um, I, yeah, but the illustrated um, Mutual Aid, for example, that's a lovely book. Um, I only say, like, why did you exclude the introduction? <laughs> um, <laughs> by the way, um, yes, it's lovely. And it's, it's, the only, it's like it's a very nice picture. And I think the same guy did um, The Great French Revolution too. Yes, yes. My, 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 yeah, my only thing about um, with with a picture, well, it's lovely. It does kind of reinforce the anarcho Santa, like bushy beard and stuff. Um, that's a minor point. It's a lovely. I like I like a cover. It's a nice cover. Um, but obviously, I think um, yeah, it's like uh, yeah, it's definitely when he's um and he's and he's a lot older than when he, he's a lot older than when he actually wrote, he the, wrote the book. Yeah, because when he was, he was in his thirties then, late twenties, early thirties. So it's like you know the beard wasn't quite so bushy, the hair wasn't quite so. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 so now, but yeah, the, the edition is lovely. It looks really nice, and it's presentations half a battle. 
people have you know, when you pick something up if it looks nice then people will more likely read it than if it's like you know a dog's dinner yeah and i think this is you know if you're out there listening to this and you've maybe read a little kapakan um on the internet or whatever but you're looking to start somewhere this particular edition it's it's got appeal to the young in it it's beautiful uh, ian has done a wonderful job with the introduction i mean this is this is a nice place to start with kropotkin or go, go right ahead i just say if you've got the um, black rose 1992 edition um i would also say that this, this new edition has got a lot of material supplementary material in it which you won't have and it has the introductions as well as it has the prefaces and postfaces and it has a kind of comprehensive glossary and um, footnotes, end notes, and so forth. So it's it's a substantial. Um, you will gain something from getting this if you already have the 1992 edition because that wasn't complete, and the translation was a bit dodgy in places. Um, so I'm uh, obviously I'm, I'm sure PM Press will be happy that I said that. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, honestly, like I I I it's like when I was making when I was doing the editing, I was thinking I have to make sure that there's reason for people who've got the 1992 edition to to consider buying this one, and it is substantially more material in it, which you have not have seen before. Um, some of it's in um, direct struggle against capital, um, but some of it's a new translation um, in this one. But so there's material there you have not seen before, um, either new translations of existing stuff or um, completely new translations. And as I say, it's a complete edition. It's got all the post, post prefaces and afterward, and it's got some very long footnotes, which weren't included <laughs> in the uh, 1992 edition. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I'll say again, if this if it looks like a big tome to you, if you're thinking, oh no, I don't, you know, I want, I'm interested in Kropotkin, I'm interested in anarchism, but I don't want to read a long, thick book. It is a series of newspaper articles. It, they you you can read one and put it down and pick the book up again in a month. It is it is delightful. I would say you know put it put it by your bed or on your coffee table and just pick it up whenever you have five minutes. And that is actually a wonderful, yeah. I do not recommend reading Kant that way, but you can no, certainly, no. you can certainly read this book that way. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a selection of articles and uh, most pamphlets um, all combined. So you can just dip in and out and sort of pick it up and put it down again without too much ask. So it's not one of these, it's like capital where you have to sort of <laughs> at page one and plow your way through. It's like, it's very, it's bite-sized, with the occasional um, large chunk, <laughs> um, that's for pamphlets. But um, yeah, but mostly uh, most of pamphlets. There's a few pamphlets, but mostly articles. Um, but as I say, it's a wide ranging, and um, you'll find something of interest in it. Um, and it's a very good book. Uh, it's, a, it's a shame it's taken so long for a complete edition to to actually arrive. Because I was excited when I saw the 1992 version, because it's like finally, it's only been like you know since 1885, um, and but now that that the edition's there, so and also if you're interested, obviously you can compare what he argues in Words of a Rebel, his first book, to Modern Science and Anarchy, which was the last book published in his lifetime, and you can see the continuity and change, because obviously there's a lot of things which are pretty much the same, but some of the emphasis is different. And it's interesting to compare and contrast. Um, so uh, not that I'm trying to get people. To, I don't. I don't. I don't get royalties. So I don't. I'm not trying to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm at work. Uh, I, 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 I get, um, I get, a, I, I, I in a pay packet, so it's like not a case I'm trying to boost, boost up my royalty sales. Um, it's, I, I wouldn't have done these, I wouldn't have worked on these books if I didn't think they were a contribution to the movement and something which is important for one, understanding Kropotkin, but also for anarchists today to um, learn from. And uh, it's a case of like, you know, read these books, but read them critically because Kropotkin would have been the last person in the world to say, regurgitate. You would have said, read this stuff, think about how it applies to you, change what you need to change, um, and apply what you need to apply. It's a foundational text, and it's to be built upon. It's not to be worshipped at. And, that, and that, I think that's the message to, 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 be, to be taken as a case. So these are contributions. They're, they're obviously contributions written like in the 18, 1879 to 1882. Um, times have changed, but also a lot of continuity still. We're still in the capitalist, still in the state. Um, it's a case of these are tools which you can use to build a movement of today, um, a foundation and a tool set, if you like, and it's what we can use to build something better now. Okay, thank you, Ian. Thank you for doing all this work you've done with Kropotkin and and other writers. And thank you for thank you for joining me on Everyday Anarchism. This was wonderful. Well, well, I'm happy to. If you want me back, um, you know, girls do put on sometime. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, I will. I will let you know. With that, without a doubt, I would love to have you back on. Right now, I'm, oh boy, I'm I'm a little under the gun with everything that's going on. But you will be hearing from me without a doubt. Okay. Well, thank, thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you.